This is a true story. Parashat HaKaremot Kedoshim, by the way, we're going to talk a little bit about HaKaremot. It's always powerful that the Shabbat after Yom HaZikaron is HaKaremot Kedoshim. That's just something to think about. An Orthodox Jewish family. I'm, I'm not... I'm reading this from a news release. This is uh, uh, from two years ago. An Orthodox Jewish family vacationing in Miami claims that American Airlines kicked them off their flight due to complaints about their body odor. This is unbelievable. You can't make this stuff up. There's no body odor that we have, says, I'm not going to repeat his name, even though it's probably not Lushnar because it was in all the newspapers. Thursday morning at Miami, there's nothing wrong with us. Right? Ab, uh, his name, his wife, and the 19-month-old daughter were preparing to fly back home to Detroit on Wednesday night when they were escorted off their American Airlines flight. Right? All of a sudden, as, they, as soon as they took us off, they closed the gate, and then they said, Sorry, sir, some people complained you had body odor, and we're not letting you back on. The, they were told their luggage would be taken off the plane, but that didn't happen, leaving them only with their clothes on their backs. They have our car seat, stroller, everything. American Airlines sent a statement to Local 10 on Wednesday night acknowledging the reason for their removal. Mr. So-and-so and his wife were removed from the flight when several passengers complained about their body odor. Now, we had a student here many, many years ago, in the early years of Orita, and he got really into it. I mean, he was like, you know, I mean... He made Ari Berman look like he's just wasting his year, right? I mean, he was sitting here till like 3 o'clock in the morning, you know. Um, I mean, learning, up for Minion, in the zone. And one of the things, he got really into learning. One day, one of the other boys comes to talk to me. He doesn't know quite how to say this, he doesn't know what to do about this. He's this boy's roommate. And he says that this boy, he just, he can't come into the room anymore. I said, what's the problem? He's a great kid. He says, well, the stench is like overwhelming. I said, stench of what? He said, well, he doesn't shower. I said, what do you mean he doesn't shower? He doesn't shower. He decided he's not showering during the week. He's only going to shower Friday afternoon on the covered Shabbos. <laughs> I said, you must be getting this wrong. That, that can't be. He said, no, it's worse. He said, not only does he not shower, but the laundry is like all over the room. And when I said to him, like, you know, we really need to clean up the room, he said, well, I'm not going to be Mavat al Torah to clean up the room. Right? So it's okay. So he said, like, I don't know what to do with this. So the first thing I did was I checked with, you know, our undercover units, known as the Madrachim. And uh, they said, yeah, it's kind of like, you know, I mean, he's a great kid, and I wouldn't, it's not way up there on my list of we have to do something about this, but yeah, he kind of stinks, you know, whatever. <laughs> and the room is pretty messy, you know, you can't, uh, I, I don't, I think that was one of the years we decided Rav Noam was going to start to be, you know, inspections and whatever. We didn't have, have Rav Chaim on board, so. Anyway, so I call this boy in, and I'm thinking, how am I going to have this conversation? Like, we could go the simple route, like, you really stink, but that's like, you know, you could hurt a person's feelings. So I kind of work around it, and I'm saying, like, whatever. And I said, you know, I, I came up with an example and a story, and I'm trying to... And finally, he understands where I'm going. He says, oh, yeah, no, it's true. I don't shower during the week. I said, really? He said, yeah. I said, is there a problem with the showers? He goes, no, I just decided, like, I really got into it, and I don't want to spend the time showering. 
I, I really like, I'm learning, I want every minute to be learning, whatever. So I had a very healthy discussion with him. It consisted of, you're now going to go back to the dormitories, you're going to get some shampoo and some soap and a towel, and you're going to go and take a shower. And when you're done, you're going to come back here, and then we will have a discussion. Now, I'm not sensitive to smell. First of all, I don't have a heightened sense of smell. It takes me a little effort to get the basamim going on uh, Matzah Shabbos. I'm not sure why that is. I just, you know, it's not, so I, it didn't bother me. But there's something seriously off with that. But why? Like, why? What if we all decided, you know, when I was in the, right? So we would go, we would go a week at a time and we didn't shower. You know, we would get back, especially when I was in Samap, we were in Shetach whole week, we were in the field. You would get back on Sunday morning, you would, you know, work on the tanks to get them ready, you would get in them and you would head out to Shetach. And you would sleep on your tanks. There were no showers. You know, and on, 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 you know, some weeks we had what's called Shavua Milchama, that would mean you went 48 hours without sleep. And then it was too dangerous to keep your maneuvers, so we would come back to base, you know, on Thursday. And Thursday night, all night, we were working on the tanks. Now, I was a tank driver. So, like, you have to grease the boogie, and you have to use the oil, and you stink. And your uniform stinks. And, and you already were stinking. And when in the summer, like, the, the clothes, you have one sarbao. Now, they did this for a reason. They wanted us, and I didn't appreciate it at the time. Like, I remember thinking to myself, like, why don't they just give us 20 minutes to shower? We'll feel better. We'll be more motivated. Well, later, when you're in serious situations in war and whatever else, you start to realize this is how it works. And the fact that I'd done this a number of times meant it wasn't overwhelming for me. But that doesn't mean that's the ideal. (coughs) But why not? Like, imagine if all of us together decided, you know what? We're not going to shower during the week. We're just going to all learn Torah. And we're going to be here, we're going to learn Torah, maybe we'll sleep on the floor, and at the end of the week, we'll all shower in the afternoon. Think how much water we would save, think how much shampoo we wouldn't have to use, which would be great for the environment. It's all a win, right? Except for one detail. It would mean that we all stink. What's the problem with this? Like, if you're doing that, L'Shem Shamayim, and you're doing that for Torah, what's... So bearing this question in mind, okay... I'll tell you another story. And this came up once in one of our shiurim, but I think it fits, it's germane to our topic. And then we'll see what these two stories have in common and where I'm going with this. Um, So there was someone in the family, I won't get more specific in case he ever hears this uh, tape. There was someone in the family who came to Israel and he went to yeshiva and it really wasn't for him. And um, he just was really struggling with it. It was too cold, too intellectual. It wasn't, you know... And um, so he switched yeshivas, and he went to Or Sameach. And Or Sameach, given where he was at, was a much better fit for him. You know, he didn't know Hebrew well enough. He, you know, he had a very weak Jewish education because of the high school he came from. And so this place was like much, you know, it was a lot of English and a lot of, <coughs> back then it was like, you know, there was no Schottenstein, but whatever it was. And they had great shirim and ashkafa and machshava and emuna and everything else. And he stayed in Or Sameach for a couple of years. And eventually, if I'm getting my, uh, my story right, he eventually got to, he's a very bright boy. And I remember the first time I met him, you know, I've been told that he's a really bright kid. He's in Shiva, this is his third year in Shiva, and he's really a go and whatever. Then I met him, and I'd been in Gush, like, I don't know, seven or eight years. It wasn't such a go. And, like, we started talking. I saw he didn't, 
you know, he was learning a particular Gemara, and I asked him about a Tosos. There's a great Tosos there, and he didn't, he hadn't seen the Tosos, and he didn't know it. Okay, like he's learning, he's just not a gaon, whatever. And then I would only run into him at family smachot, you know, every year or two. And I started to notice, like, he was starting to get, you know, like the next time I met him, he could quote me a Rashba. And after that, you know, he was bucky, you know, he was getting bucky in Masechtas. And then he was like, you're learning Yerushalmi. And finally, after about 10 years, you know, I saw him, you know, at a Levaya. And after Levaya, we were talking. And I realized he's really becoming a Talmud Chacham. So I said to him, and of course, by this time, I think he was light years ahead of where I was, because that's all he was doing, is sitting and learning all day. So I said to him, so what's the plan? He goes, what do you mean? I said, well, like, you know, you've been in Shiva for like, I don't know, 10, 12 years. You know, you're married now, whatever. What's the plan? Like, what's next? He said, what do you mean, what's next? I said, well, you know, when are you going to leave yeshiva? He says, I hope never. I said, you want to stay in yeshiva forever? He said, yeah. I said, for what? He says, to learn Torah. And I said, okay, but learning Torah is important. I'm into learning Torah, but what's learning Torah for? In other words, like, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to teach? No, no, I just want to sit and learn. So I said, well, how long do you plan to sit and learn yeshiva? He says, as long as I can. I said, well, you would stay in yeshiva your entire life? He said, absolutely. Now, I don't, you know, like life is not about conflict and you respect different people's opinions, right? And he wasn't asking for mine, so I didn't give it to him. But I remember I walked away from that and I said, I felt like there's something off with that. There's something wrong with that. I don't think that sitting in, you know, you know the Rambam and Hilchos Talmud Torah and Parakim Al-Lachayyid clearly says that a person who lives off of stuck and learns Torah all day forever is Mevazet Torah. The Ketzav Mishnah disagrees, but whatever. So I was really struggling with this. Like, I just, I'm really struggling. I just, okay, I said, we have a difference of opinion. I think it's valuable to learn a lot of Torah. I don't, by the way, think that most people can get there in a year. You know, like, the, the, the communities that you, I should say we, because I grew up in the same communities you did, you know, said, like, it's a big deal to come to Israel for a year and learn Shiva, and I don't try to convince people otherwise, but you can't compare where a boy in a year or really six or seven months of learning gets to, as opposed to, let's say, as Dernik, who does like three or sometimes four or five years of learning, right? But in either case, I don't think the goal is to say in Shiva. I think there's another goal, right? So can I get so into spirituality, can I get so into learning, that I lose sight of the bigger picture, and is that off? Or would you say if a person's sitting and learning Torah his whole life, and his entire life is Torah and mitzvot, you know, I'm sure people who are learning Torah still do chesed and other things, maybe that's an ideal, what do you do with that? So bearing that in mind, let's talk a little about right? Parshas Acharemos is an interesting dialectic because it seems to take us back to something we already left. Right? So Hashem speaks to Moshe after the deaths of the two sons of Aaron. Which is interesting, like, why do we have to... We, we know they died. Obviously, this discussion, which has a lot to do with Avelos and Yom Kippur, right? The whole Seder Avoda of Yom Kippur, the entire ritual that the Kohen and the Kohen Gadol does on Yom Kippur is in this week's parsha, right? It ends with um, the story, like, sort of the mitzvot that are about Arayos, which are all the licentious and forbidden behaviors. After the deaths of Nadav and Aviyu, Hashem, you know, talks to Moshe, Right? And let's talk about Yom Kippur. And when we're done, let's make sure that everybody knows you can't sleep with your sister. I like peanut butter. Do you ski? Like, what? This is a very strange parasha. But look at this first passage. 
So in order to understand this, clearly we need to understand what happened in the story of Nadav Naviyu. Because everything in this parsha happens sort of against the backstage of the fact that they died. Now, we spoke about Nadav Naviyu a couple of times over the last few weeks, but we were more talking about the theological existential struggle of Aaron losing his sons. Let's talk about what exactly happened there. What did Nadav Naviyu do? It's interesting, by the way, it says, I'm going to read the Pasuk, you ask me the question. This question is so obvious that if you don't get this question the first time I read this Pasuk, then you need to stay Shanabed. Which I think you do anyway, so fine, right? After the deaths of the two sons of Aaron, Obvious question here. Should I read it again? Yeah, Shanabed for you, okay, right? What's the question? Yeah. It says, after the deaths of Aaron's sons who went before Hashem and died. Why does it repeat Vayamutu? We already know they're dead. We knew they're dead from Parshat Shmini. But now it tells me that after they died and then it says they died. So what does it mean Vayamutu? What is it doing here? Clearly, the Pasuk here is emphasizing the fact that, that it's not just about that they happened to die, but I want you to understand why they died. Why did they die? That's what the Pasuk says. They died, and their death is in relationship to the fact that they were coming close to Hashem. How does coming close to Hashem lead to your death. Okay. So let's see how this works. This gets interesting. Why did they die? The Medrash, okay, Medrash Rabbit, right? I mentioned once before that there are many different opinions as to exactly what happened is. When you look at different sources, if you see one source that brings many different possibilities, first of all, it's a sure sign that the Chazal weren't clear, but there's usually a theme. So this is in the Medrash Rabbah. It's on Parshat Acharemot. Interestingly enough, it's not in Parshat Shmini, where they actually died. This is the place the Medrash wants to talk about this. So let's hear what they say. Okay? Um, Bar Kafra says, in the name of Rav Yirmiya, Bishvil Dalet Varim, Metu Banav Aaron. The sons of Aaron died for four things. There were four reasons they died. Not four different opinions. Four things they did. Right? <laughs> Al hakreva, okay, the al hakirva, al eshzara, the al hakrava, al hakreva, which means that they came close to Hashem, and they offered up an eshzara, the al shalom latlu they didn't seek each other's advice. In other words, you've got something going on. You think maybe you want to bring another Torah, another you know offering that wasn't commanded. Talk to each other. You're both leaders. Get advice, right? I'm Rav Yirmiya ben Elazar. So Rav Yirmiya ben Elazar says, "Bedalid mekomot maskir mitatan shel bnei Aron, shelo ayabi adam ela avon zel bilvad." There are four places that it says why another one of you died, bekarvatam lifnei Hashem, and because of that, says that what the Torah is telling us is these are the only chatoim they have. This is interesting. In the same place that it tells me these are the four reasons that they died, it tells me they were on such a high level that. This is the only mistake that they did. And whatever mistakes were involved in this mistake, 
They didn't take advice from each other. They came close to Hashem when they weren't supposed to. They offered up something they weren't supposed to, right? By the way, who doesn't take advice from someone? What causes a person not to take advice from someone else? Arrogance. Oh, that's interesting. Arrogance. There's another word I'm looking for, but that's true, right? What else? When do you not ask anybody's opinion? When you know what? Come on. When you know you're right. When you're zealous. When you have zeal. Every once in a while, we'll be having a discussion, and maybe I'm wrong, but I I just know what the answer is. We have that sometimes. There's a big debate, you do it this way, this way. I know what we should be doing. Right? So arrogance would leave me not to get advice. But sometimes, there's no time to get advice. You know what has to be done, you do it. Zeal. Absolute conviction. Passion. That can sometimes lead you away from getting advice from other people. Right? I didn't get advice from people about when I decided I wanted to go to the army. I was so convinced I was doing the right thing. I had thought about this enough. I wasn't asking anybody's opinion. I felt that was something that I needed to do and wanted to do. I never have had any issue with anybody else who didn't do the army. And I don't think, I don't think people who grew up in America are obligated in the same way. It's just my personal opinion. But, but nonetheless, <coughs> zeal. Passion. Right? Listen to this. Rabbi Yeshua Dech Sachnin, Rabbi Yochanan B'Shem Rav Levi, right? Amru B'Shvil Dalet Varim Meitu Bnei Aaron. They seem to have had a tradition that they died for four things. U'Bekulan Ksiv Be'em Misa. Alsha Yushtu Yeyayin. They were drunk. Okay? Mechusarei Begadim. They were missing some of the big day kahuna. Okay? Shenichnesu Belo Rechitzas Yadayim V'Raglayim. They didn't wash themselves properly. Sound familiar? Okay? Right? Um, they didn't have children. Right? They died because they didn't have children? What does that have to do with anything? They died because they didn't get married? They, they brought a strange offering. What does that mean? Now, <coughs> whenever you find a medrash which seems to offer disparate positions on exactly what the issue here is, as a methodological tool, what do you need to do? See a mentor that says, here are the four things. And somebody says, here are the four things. Right? So what do we have to do? I have to figure out what are those four things <coughs> have in common. Is there a machanem mishutaf? Is there a message to these four things? What, what is this all about? Right? And let's pick four of them. <coughs> and you can then extrapolate to the other ones. You'll see that it works. Right? They entered the Kodesh Kadashim, Hashem, when they weren't supposed to do that, right? Because they took fire and they put it on the Ketorah, on the Mizbech Ketorah, which is right opposite the Kodesh Kadashim. They weren't wearing Big Day Kuna. What makes a coin not wear Big Day Kuna like that's right? Um, they didn't have children and they didn't marry. Right? What do these four things have in common? And by the way, where do you see this in the Torah? I'm not sure we'll get to this, but the Menrish didn't just pull things out of the wazoo. They're, 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 there's a basis for this. There must be some basis in the Pasuk, in the Torah, for whatever this position represents. So it's not just about finding something in common, it's seeing whether I can then fit that into the Pasuk so that I understand how they got to this, right? So, and by the way, add another question. So the Medrash says, right, um, <coughs> if I can quote the exact, right? 
Bishvil Dalit Varim Metu, for four things they died. And then Rav Yirmiya says also, Bishvil Dalit Varim Metu. Right? Velo Yamutu. What is the word I would have expected to find? The Medrash is trying to answer what was their. Pardon? Yeah, their chait. It doesn't say anywhere in this Medrash, Shechatu. It doesn't say they sinned. It doesn't say they transgressed. It doesn't say they made a mistake. It just says these are the four things for which they, they died. What was their chait? So it's interesting, the Chazal seemed to say they didn't do a chait. Or maybe they did do a chait. You can find both. So if there's an opinion that says it wasn't a chait, that's fascinating. Why would you die if you didn't have a chait? Right? And if you do have a chait, how can the position that there's a chait align itself with the fact that it doesn't say shechatu? How do you deal with that? Right? What is their chait? So, Rav Shimshon Hirsch, and I think the Medrash is trying to say this, um, has a fascinating perspective, and the Lubavitcher Rebbe in one of his Ma'amarim on um, Acharemot, which I couldn't find today, but I know it comes from the Babach Rebbe, um, says basically the same thing. He says, what was the real issue here? The real issue here is, Bekorvatam lifnei Hashem vayamutu. You know, there's a Gemara. It's a Gemara in Chagiga. Somebody here did a Siyam in Chagiga. Okay, so you'll remember this, right? Have you done Chazara and Chagiga since you did Chagiga? If I say Daf Tesva, will you know which story I'm talking about? No? Oh, this is a great discussion for Chazara, but for another time. This is one of the most... This is a Gemara that everybody knows, they just don't know it's in Chagiga. You know it's in Chagiga. Right? So the Gemara says like this, the bottom of, of Yud Dalar Bet. Is it? Yeah. Tanu Rabbanu. Arba Nechnesuba Pardes. Four individuals, right now everybody recognizes, right? Four individuals went into the Pardes. What's the Pardes? The Orchard of Torah. Pshat, Remez, Drash, and Sod. They went through all the different levels, delving deeper and deeper into Torah. Okay? And there were four that were described as having entered the Pardes, which means they reached the highest levels of Torah. Okay? Who were these four? Ben Azai, Ben Zoma, Acher, and Rabbi Akiva. Now what happened to them? They all went into the Pardes, but they didn't quite all come out. In fact, only one of them really comes out. Who's that? Rabbi Akiva. So let's think about this. What happened to these four individuals? Okay? So, Ben Azai hates his mate. Ben Azai glimpsed into the Pardes and he died. Okay? Doesn't tell me what he did. It just says he died. Okay? Ben Zoma hates his Venifka. He went mad. He went mad. Acher kitzets vanitiot. He cut off the shoots. In other words, he, he cut himself out from under his legs. He became an apicurus. Okay, he became a heretic. Rabbi Akiva, and here there are two girsos. One says Rabbi Akiva yatsa and one says Rabbi Akiva nichnas v'yatsa b'shalom. Right? Now it's interesting that with the other four, it never says they went out. It just says they went in and this is what happened to them. Rabbi Akiva, he got out in peace. So the obvious question is, what did Rabbi Akiva do right that the others did wrong? Well, Rabbi Akiva, when this is quoted in the Drush, in the Medrash, is the only one as, to, who was described 
in terms of how he went in. It starts off by saying, Arba Nichnasu. By Rabbi Kiva, it also says, Nichnas B'Shalom, V'yatzeh B'Shalom. So one could make a case for saying that the fundamental difference between Rabbi Akiva and the other three, like, why do I need to know how they went in? Like, what's fundamentally different from Rabbi Akiva as opposed to Ben Azai, Ben Zoma, and Acher, right, of Elisha Ben Avuya? Is that Rabbi Akiva was the only one who came out. So why is the Gemara telling me how they went in? Because the truth is, the big difference is not how they got out. The big difference is how they went in. The fundamental difference between Rabbi Akiva and the other is that Rabbi Akiva nichnas b'shalom. Now this is a dangerous thing to say. And I wouldn't deign to say this if I hadn't seen this in the Mamar of Lubavitch Rebbe, right? But Lubavitch Rebbe suggests that the fundamental... Well, you know what? You tell me. What do you think is the difference? If somebody goes into the party, he's learning Torah, and he comes out b'shalom. Listen, you know what? Every once in a while, I'll have a dialogue with a parent. I recently had one again, you know, actually, Anya Mazikaron, uh, with a prospective parent this time, and they're very nervous. You know, I didn't bank on this. You know, my son went to high school, at sent to Yeshiva High School. I figured he's going to go to college. He got into a good college, and all of a sudden, he wants to take a year and go to Yeshiva. Like, I didn't bank on that. First of all, I didn't bank on an extra year of tuition. And second of all, why is he putting his life off? Right? What are they really nervous about? They're nervous about what happens when you go into the pardes. Right? What do they call that in modern language? He's going to flip out. He's going to flip out. Next thing I know... By the way, what's their definition of flipping out? What happens? You see a guy, he's flipped out. What do you see that, that, that says, this was a mistake? Pardon? Pay us now. Pay is just an external factor. The simple, the single behavior that most worries parents. Pardon? You think that's what it is? Nah. Black cat, maybe that, maybe a black cat would make them nervous for a minute. No, you know what I think it is? <clears throat> he won't eat in my house. He won't talk to me. He won't look at his mother anymore because he's so frum. In other words, he took a dive into the deep end and he hasn't really come out. Because our perception, and I include myself, we want our kids to be similar to us. Maybe a little better than us. But we don't really want our kids to be that different from us because we believe that us is how a person should be. So why would I want my kid not to be what a person should be? So if I'm Chardal, I want my kid to be Chardal. And if I'm Haredi, I want my kid to be Haredi. And if I'm modern Orthodox, I want my kid to be modern. If I'm modern Orthodox light, if I'm modern Orthodox with a pump for keratin kashras, like whatever it is. So if this kid comes back and he's jumped in off the deep end, what that really means is he's Nichnas Lepardes, he doesn't come out. He's either mad, he's crazy. He wants to sit and learn in yeshiva for 10 years. That's nuts. He could get a good job. Who's he going to support? Right? Or he's an apikaris. He doesn't believe in the principles of going to college and getting an education and having a job when he's an apikaris from their perspective. And I'm not saying this is a humorous act. I think it's a legitimate question. Right? Or, 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 or he just dies. He's just, he's just gone to us. I know somebody who has a son who went to yeshiva, I won't mention the name of the yeshiva, ended up staying there for three or four years, um, lives on a very small yeshiva in Israel, um, and, you know, I once got together with the mother, and the only reason I know this story is because their younger son came here, 
and they were very hesitant about sending him to yeshiva and everything else. And so this whole story came up. We had a long discussion about this. And now I, I don't know the boy, and I never met the boy. I'm just, I'm, I'm talking about this story through the lens of a mother who thinks the boy took a, a leap off the deep end. He will not look at her when he talks to her. That's what she feels. They will not come to visit them because they won't eat in their house, and they don't want to, never mind that they can't take vacations anymore, etc. And when she goes, to, when they go to visit them, it's very hard for them to relate. So they think that this kid went off into some degree... They're dead to him and he's dead to them. And I said, are you close to them? And she looked at me like I was, she said, of course not. Which just was the saddest part of the conversation. And I'm not judging anybody here. I understand how these things happen. Right? So what was the fundamental difference? What was the fundamental difference between Rabbi Akiva and the other three, Benazai, Benzoma, and Acher? Very simple. Rabbi Akiva was Nichnas Peshalom. It's not just about how he came out. It's about how he went in. He went into the Pardes, not for the Pardes. He went into the Pardes to study Torah because he understood that the Torah was a gift. It was something to immerse yourself in, but it wasn't the goal. The goal was not to stay in the Sea of Torah. The goal was to bring the Sea of Torah back with you into the world. His intention was never to stay in the Pardes. His intention was to take that experience and bring it back out to the world. Rabbi Akiva, if you take this literally, was 24 years in yeshiva. I mean, he eventually became a Rebbe and then a Gadol Batorah, but 24 years. His wife, after 12 years, the daughter of Kalba Savua, she's the ultimate modern Orthodox light. I mean, you know, he was like in the world of commerce. And Rabbi Akiva comes back after 12 years and overhears her talking. You remember this, Kamara? Overhears her talking to her friend who is trying to prevail upon her that he's never coming back and he's, he's left you here destitute and you should divorce him or whatever else is going on there. And she says, Halavai, that he would stay another 12 years. He's growing in Torah. So he hears this, takes it to his son, goes back to Shiva for 12 years. Another 12 years. Now let's be honest here. If your kid your brother, your friend, goes off to yeshiva for 12 years, clearly isn't, again, whether you take this literally is another question, but within the allegory of this drush, isn't talking to his wife for 12 years, then goes back for another 12 years, what would you call that guy? Meshugana. You'd say there's something wrong with him. You're away from your wife for 24 years? That's crazy. And yet Rabbi Akiva comes back and he comes to God of the Torah. And he's the one who goes in B'Shalom and comes out B'Shalom. Because Rabbi Akiva's plan was never just to be in Shiva. Rabbi Akiva's plan was eventually, can I take what I learn and bring it out into the world? And that's what he does. He has 24,000 students, which is 1,000 students, which is a number that represents many things for every year he's in Shiva. By the way, does anybody know the only other place you find the concept of 24,000? Anybody? 24,000. Which event in the Torah, in Bamidbar, has 24,000 people died? Nope. I'm going to leave you to think about it. I'm not going to give it because if I tell you, you'll just forget it. If you have to go look for it, look it up. And you tell me what the parallels are between those two and has to do with Shevet Levy. But anyway, right? So, so they let their spiritual passion overcome, override their job in Olam Rabbi Akiva goes into the Pardes and is essentially asking, 
Why am I learning Torah? What does Hashem want of me? How do I take this Torah and bring it back into the world? According to the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Ben Azai, Acher, and Ben Zoma go into the parties because they want to, because they want to immerse themselves in relation with Akash Baruch They just want to get spiritually high. Now this is a tough question. Nadav and Aviyu are so impassioned. They're so captured by the joy of Am Yisrael on the day they're forgiven and the Chanukat Mishkan. Their passion knows no bounds and they just want more. And they've gotten so close to Akash Baruch Why would you ever want to leave that? So they go deeper and deeper into that world until eventually they get lost. Now, on the one hand, you can't say it's a chait to want to be close to Akash Baruch It's not this, the, 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 the type of chait we're used to. And by the way, think about it. So now what's common to these different perspectives as to what they did wrong? Well, they didn't want to have children because why would you waste time having children or getting married when you can connect to Akash Baruch By the way, Ben Azai, who is the one who goes in and dies, what does that mean that he dies? If he doesn't say Yichet. So the Mepharshim explained, also talks about this. He, he, he reached such a spiritual level, his neshama could no longer function in a physical world. You can get to a point where you're so spiritual that the physical world can't hold you anymore. And to a lesser degree, sometimes you experience this. People are in such a spiritual mode, they're so in, immersed in the joy of Torah and, and Akush Baruch Hu and spirituality that the physical world just becomes less and less important. Right? You know, you, you go back home and your dad wants to go, wants to watch the NBA game with you. Right? I remember when I got back from Yeshiva, I came back for a visit um, before the army after Shanabet. I was like super Jew. I mean, I was like machmer and things you never heard of. And you know, I was learning in the morning and learning at night and davening for and my tzitzis were down to my puppet. It was unbelievable. Right? And you know, my dad says, you know, do you want to watch the game? And I'm like, why would I want to watch a basketball game? They get the ball, they throw it away. Well, let's learn Torah. Right? And he listen, my dad, Baruch Hashem, he's a tzaddik, my father, and, and he was so happy that I wanted to learn that I was into it, whatever. I mean, he'd been watching this development through high school. But only years later did he tell me that that was a difficult moment for him because he felt that I had moved on and left him behind. And I missed an opportunity. Now, I've since long made it up. I mean, Baruch Hashem, I'm close to my father and my parents live here. But I had a moment to bond with my dad as, as an immersion in Kibur Avain, right? And I missed that opportunity because I was too busy learning Torah. <coughs> Not so simple. What's all the Torah for? What was my issue with this cousin? All this learning, and I'm not, I'm not, you know, like, if you could sit and learn for 24 years and really become a Gardel Bator and a Posek, and then because of that, and I remember struggling with this in Yeshiva, I reached a certain point, I finished the army, I finished Smicha, whatever I was, and, and I was back in Yeshiva, and I started thinking about what do I want to do with all this? And I had a decision to make. I had a friend who was, who, who was talking about staying in Yeshiva to learn to become a Dayan. Learning to become a Dayan is an enormous amount of learning. It's basically Shas and Poskin. You have to go through all of Shas. You have to go through the Arba Turim, right? You know, Choshen Mishpat, Evan Ezer, Orachayim, and, and Yeridea. You have to know all the Poskin. I mean, it's an enormous amount of learning. It takes, for a good student, it takes 10 years. 
So if you're going to be a posek, you've got to immerse yourself in Torah. You can't become a posek after three years in Yeshiva. You've got to sit for 10, 12 years. Or don't be a posek and go out into the world. But, and the reason I really thought maybe I should be a posek is because I thought it, it's important to have people who are swimming in Shas, who are really poske alacha, who, can, who, who, who are personable, who can have a relationship with people, who can bring them in. For whatever the reasons, I decided that wasn't me. I wasn't meant to be a posek. And so I went out into the world and did what I, but the question I had was how best am I going to take everything I learned and bring it back into the world? If you throw yourself into a relationship with Hashem and that's the goal, and it's never to come back into the world, then you're missing something. And that's the mistake of Nadav and Avihu. Some Mepharshim say it's a chait. Because it's a mistake to think that, that immersing yourself in the world of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, That's not enough. You have to then take it back into the world. Now, of course, this raises an interesting problem. And with this, we'll, we'll, we'll end. How do you do that? How do you do that? How do you, how do you tell a person... You've immersed yourself in spirituality. You're coming so close to Hashem. You're getting so high. And now you have to step back. You have to bring it back into the world. That's a very difficult thing to do. Right? How do you do that? How do you become Rabbi Akiva? If your intentions are L'Shem Shamayim, remember the Rambam says, Nechodeot in Paragimel, V'chol Masechei L'Shem Shamayim, he quotes the mission of If it's really about what Hashem wants of you, and it's not just about Hashem, it's about what Hashem wants of you. Judaism says that we're meant to bring the Torah down into the world. It's not supposed to stay up on our Sinai. The Luchot have to come down. The Ol Moed is not supposed to stay out of the camp. It's supposed to come back into the middle of the camp. Now, you could debate when a person's ready to do this and how long a person should take, but eventually, the real measure is not here. Everything we do here trying to get so high, trying to become so deep, to connect to Kosh to fall in love with learning, that's this year, or more. But it's not the goal. The goal is, how do you take this back into the world? Wherever that world is, the world could be university, it could be the army, it could be your profession one day, it could be at home with your family. How do I take this back into the world? That is the lesson of Nadav Hashem. Their mistake, the reason that Vayamutu, they left this world, is because it wasn't just a physical death. It was that they left the physicality of the world not understanding that the reason Hashem put us in this world and gave us this world is not to get away from this world and beyond this world, but to bring the beyond into the world. If you sit here for a year and you don't rise up if, if you don't connect to Hashem in a deeper way, if you don't fall in love with learning, some level of learning, if you don't see the value of mitzvot and all this stuff, then you missed an opportunity. And you missed what a year could do for you. But if you do all that, and you get there, and you don't see the value of bringing that back with you into the world, then you've missed the whole point, at least in this yeshiva. The question is not, can you fall in love with the daf gemara? Can you... Can you have a moment? And I'm not saying I get there every day. Can you have a moment where you're davening and halal? Even if it happens once a year on Lelat's Mot, and you're suddenly so deep in a moment of halal that you're embracing it. If you can't find a way to take that moment and bring it back wherever you go, then what was it worth? That's the challenge of Dada Daviyah. It's interesting. You know, this is Kaitzman. This is the end of the year. You know, Ben Azai is, is I mean, he was, he lived a very... Withdrawed, withdrawn form of life. Um, Benazai is famous. There's a Gemara in. Um, it's in. 
It's in Yivamos. The Gemara in Yivamos says, um, I'll quote you only this part, Ben Azai Omer, right? Kol mi she'en oseik bepiria v'rivya ki'ilu shofech tamim. That's Rabbi Lezer. Ben Azai Omer ki'ilu shofech tamim v'maitad mut. He's both limiting the image of Hashem in the, in the world, and it's like he's murdering. Because if he's not misasek and puruvu, if he's not building a family, right, then what are you here for? That's, that's a mitzvah, to, to populate the world and to bring this to the world. So listen to this, unbelievable. His Talmidim come to him. You get a person who preaches something and he lives what he preaches, what he teaches. V'yesh... Um, uh, you are teaching something, but you're not living up to it. Why? Because he never got married. He has no children. He's not fulfilling the mitzvah. And he's saying you should do this. What can I do? Right? That my, my soul loves Torah so much. The world can be populated by others. I have to sit and learn Torah. I just I can't. I love Torah too much. So the Gemara basically says that he's, he's not na'eh. He's preaching to him. He's not living up to it. And he eventually leaves this world. And Chazal are clearly saying, that's not the way it should be. That's not who we want to be. So on the one hand, reach the level of a Benazai. Immerse yourself in Torah. On the other hand, be challenged to bring it back into the world. If you get so into learning Torah that you stop showering and people can't sit, I'm not saying his name right here like that, and people can't sit next to you, then all your Torah is out the window. But if you're so busy showering, you're never in the basement of learning Torah, then you miss a lot. And the goal, which I think is sort of the balance between El Azar and Itamar and Adam and Aviyu, is all about balance. balance. Little food for thought, Rabosai and Parshat Acharemot. <laughs>